0: Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, we are going to Luke chapter 5. Uh, the last sermon we'll do this year in Luke. So, beginning next week, we'll start our Emmanuel series, in which we'll be inviting people from the congregation to share. Uh, I'll be sharing on December 24th as we look at the Christmas Eve service. And then we'll be into January where we'll pick back up here in Luke. But for the next few weeks, our last look at Luke's gospel Luke chapter 5. Last week, we started Luke chapter 5 with what was really, I think, an important passage, and I think as many of you sensed as well, too, an important service. We saw Jesus beginning to call his first disciples, Peter, and then James and John, with him. And with that calling, we got a kind of comparison, the way Peter had responded to Jesus compared to those places we had looked at before in previous chapters, places like Nazareth and Capernaum. There was also an important introduction last week in Peter's reaction, his response to Jesus Seeing the power and authority of Jesus, that miraculous catch of fish hauled into the boats, Peter, of course, fell before Jesus, depart from me, he said, for I am a sinful man. I pointed out last week that that's the first time in Luke's gospel this topic of sin emerges, the first time that it's mentioned. And perhaps it's somewhat surprising to find it in the mouth of the first disciple, It's not the crowds that bring the topic up, not the religious leaders that bring it up, but Jesus' first follower at his knees. I am a sinful man, the recognition of his his own unworthiness before Jesus. But Jesus, hearing that proclamation of Peter's own sinfulness, does not drive him away or kick him out. Well, never mind, I guess you won't be a follower. Instead, Jesus says to him, Peter, follow me, and I will make you a catcher of men." Chapter 5 actually continues that theme, and having begun in Peter's own words, this idea of his sinfulness, this topic of sin becomes central to the rest of this chapter, as we're going to see today, and even as we come back to it in January, it will still be there as well. So far, Jesus had been preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God, and as we've seen in the previous chapters, he had been doing so with those demonstrations of his power and authority. The demons who had been cast out, the miracles, the healings that had been performed, The crowds had been very impressed by it, recognizing his power and his authority, but Peter is the first to recognize that something about what Jesus had put on display was connected to what was going on in his own life. I am unworthy to have seen these things, to have benefited from these things, me, a sinful man. Now that topic of sin will become central. In Luke, we get a kind of, in Luke chapter 5, we get a kind of shift. We're going to begin reading in a moment, starting in verse 12. And that shift takes place. So far, Luke has been giving us these particular places, Nazareth, Capernaum. But here we simply get in one of those cities. The focus now shifts away from the crowds, away from those places. And it brings us into the lives of these two individuals to which Jesus will speak to. If you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 5, I'm going to be reading in verse 12 all the way through verse 26. Jesus cleanses a leper and Jesus heals a paralytic beginning in chapter five, verse 12. When he was in one of those cities, that is Jesus, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, But go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were, being, were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this that should speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. An amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Luke chapter 5. Two stories. I want to look at each of them for a moment. The man that's cleansed of this leprosy, this man who came lame but went home walking, But as I pointed out before, this central question that I think is really at the center of both of these stories, this question of sin. First, the man that is healed of leprosy. Luke tells us that a man came who was full of it, full of leprosy. We need to do a little bit of work this morning on that diagnosis to understand fully what's going on. My ESV Bible actually has a little note, a footnote acknowledging that this leprosy was a range of sicknesses or skin diseases in the ancient world. But I think there's actually slightly more to it than even that. If you want some technical reading uh, this afternoon, build a fire, it's cold, you're not outside doing chores, and sit down with Leviticus chapters 13 through 14, and you will get all of the regulations and laws associated with this condition of leprosy, which is being described here. The ancient diagnosis was probably a range of skin diseases that's not directly connected to the modern disease that we often call leprosy. There's probably a range of things that were going on here that are described specifically as this condition. If you read in Leviticus 13, you'll find information like this. When someone has a swelling or a rash or a shiny spot on their skin that may be defiling skin disease, they must be brought to Aaron or the priest, to one of his sons who is a priest, and the priest is to examine the sore on the skin, and if the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is a defiling skin disease. Um, I read you three verses. You get two chapters of this if you go to Leviticus 13 and 14. What's going on is they're describing this range of conditions that people would have suffered with. And not only those conditions, but also the procedure by which it was confirmed to be leprosy. And if you keep reading, the way in which that leprosy was to be cleansed and then confirmed to have been cleansed. It goes on for two chapters with that law of Moses as it's referred to here in Luke's gospel if you went on and read in other places in the Jewish writings, the Mishnah, that collection of oral traditions that would have probably been common in the time of Jesus, you'll find out that there's an entire tractate or what's called a chapter, a large section of the Mishnah that's dedicated just to this topic of leprosy. The Hebrew word that's often used, we get our word leprosy from the Greek, but the Hebrew idea of it is the word za'aretz, za'aretz, And the idea that's being talked about in all of this Jewish writing, quite a bit of it on this one specific topic, is not just the fact that there were skin diseases or skin conditions in the ancient world, but if you read, what you will find again and again is the connection between those diseases and an underlying spiritual cause. In many of the writings, it's considered a sickness of the soul as much as it's considered a sickness of the skin. If you think about places where leprosy comes up in the story of the Bible, you'll find that it's often associated with a kind of judgment in the biblical story. So you get the story of Moses at the burning bush. He was struggling to believe, struggling to trust God, and do you remember the scene? God commands him to place his hand inside of his cloak, and as he pulls it out, his hand has become leprous. He places it in again, and now it's healed. Or maybe you remember the story of Miriam who had begun to gossip and rebel against Moses in the wilderness and so forth was struck with leprosy. Or of course that great story from the book of Kings about Naaman, the Syrian general who had come down with leprosy and was told to go and seek a healing from the prophet within Israel. Those stories of leprosy are really impacts of sin within these individuals that as the Jews often pointed out played out in a community context it wasn't just you sinned you got leprosy but it was a kind of growing symptom of those sins that plagued communities gossip and slander and rebellion lies that were spreading or sexual immorality so these consequences of leprosy was often seen by the Jewish teachers as being a symptom it was coming from those sins that were breaking down or putting at risk the community. So it was the leper was declared unclean. That sense of uncleanness is not just you might, con- you might receive the disease if you were contaminated by the person that had it. The idea of uncleanness was a spiritual component. In other words, you were kicked out of the community because of the concern this sin might spread throughout the community... The uncleanness meant that you could no longer participate in worship, the rituals of the people or the community. You notice right away that this is the question that's at the center for this man who comes with leprosy. He comes asking Jesus to make him clean. He's not just asking, can you fix this skin condition? He's asking that his whole life could be put back together, that he could be in a position again to worship within the community, that he could be declared clean as a participant in the community, He came and fell at Jesus' feet and said, Lord, if you will, make me clean. Now, that's a big statement. If leprosy was a symptom of some kind of underlying sin, or if it was a condition of the soul, then healing was not just a physical act, as much as that healing was itself a cleansing spiritual act. The man did not ask to be healed. That happened before when Jesus healed others in places like Capernaum, but here... He asks that he could be made clean. The crest is really a spiritual one. There's also a procedure, if you keep reading in Leviticus 13 and 14, for how this is supposed to go. First of all, if this leprosy is a sign of some kind of divine judgment, then it seems obvious that the only real solution is for that judgment, that hand of God, to be removed. If God had given the leprosy, then it was at God's control to remove that leprosy. And upon that leprosy having been removed, then it was up to the individual to go to the priest to have that confirmed. Why would they go to a priest? A priest wasn't a medical doctor. They had medical doctors. They went because they understood this to be primarily a spiritual question. Has God lifted this judgment? And am I now welcome and clean to participate within the worship and the community? It's interesting if you go and look up this idea of za'aretz, this idea of leprosy in Jewish teaching, Many modern Jews today don't believe that this actual condition exists anymore, and their logic goes something like this. In order to be fully cleansed, you had to go and make certain sacrifices and be approved by a priest at the temple. And in their minds, since there is no longer a temple and no longer sacrifices and no longer that priesthood, why would God pass this kind of judgment on a person in which there wasn't a way for him to remove that judgment? So many modern Jews will say that this was a condition of God's judgment in the ancient world that is no longer practiced or put upon people today. That might be true, but I also think it's worth acknowledging that there are diseases and sicknesses, parts, consequences of this broken humanity, this world in which we live in, that it does us some good to recognize. Some of these things are direct, we could probably make a list, don't need to this morning, for lifestyles of sin that often lead towards real sickness and disease. But it's also something more broad than that. Sin has broken the world around us. We see it in people, our actions, our behavior, our choices, but it's also true of this physical reality. Sickness is not God's design, not the way this world was originally created in the garden, but it is a symptom of this sin that has broken, both our moral character, but also these human bodies, us now being held captive to death and disease in this broken world. What stands out in this story, in my opinion, is not that sickness should exist or that that sickness and the ancient world was associated with the brokenness of humanity. What strikes me is the way that Jesus responds to it. He says to the man, I will be clean. He reaches out, Luke tells us, and touches the man. Now, remember, these lepers were supposed to be separated from the community. That by touching them or coming in contact, you were made ceremonially unclean and unfit for worship. A clean thing does not make an unclean thing clean. The unclean thing contaminates that which is clean. But Jesus does not hesitate to reach out and touch this man to place his hand on him unclean according to the law and speak to him be clean. Jesus then follows those laws. He sends the man off to go and be approved by the priest to make the necessary sacrifices that Moses had described. He's charged the man not even to speak about it. We see that come up in the gospels and perhaps it's strange. We'll get to a fuller answer in stories to come, but already as we've seen the crowds building and growing and pressing in against Jesus, there is something about this particular work here he does that he seeks to hold between this man and him. It is not just an outward sign he acts, a healing in this man's body, but something deeper, a cleanness that he has given to him by his touch. And so it is this first story shifts our attention. It shifts the way we think about what Jesus is doing. He's been casting out demons on a public scale, healing those physical sicknesses. Remember Peter's mother-in-law, who he broke the fever of supernaturally. But here he now speaks this quiet word to this man, be clean. He claims the power by his touch to be able to make clean, to drive out those sins and impurities This first story piques our attention to what Jesus is trying to do beyond those outward signs of miracles and healings. And Luke gives us a second story, quickly, to take up the same theme. One of those days, Luke describes it, giving us a story set in that same moment, that same context, but here we're introduced to a new cast of characters, Pharisees and teachers of the law and scribes. They, in this second story, have come from all over Galilee as well as from Judea and from the great city of Jerusalem, leaders and teachers and experts. They have no doubt come because they've heard that spreading word of what Jesus has been doing, the miracles, the healings, the exorcism. These are thinking men, evaluators, those responsible for discerning spiritual things and providing direction and teaching and leadership for God's people. Jesus was healing the sick on that very day as they set in to watch and observe and determine. They had no doubt heard all about it and so they had come to see it for themselves and Luke tells us that day Jesus was healing the sick around him. The crowd in the house where Jesus was teaching had become so compressed that the sick could no longer make their way in to Jesus. I think part of what Luke wants us to visualize is those particular Pharisees and teachers and scribes filling up those seats in the house that are keeping people from, who actually need healing from being able to get access to Jesus. They come not to actually listen to what he's saying, certainly not to be healed of anything. They come to observe. They come to make judgment. And so it is by their setting in the seats, they actually keep people like this lame man with his friends from accessing Jesus. But determined, these friends won't take no They go up onto the roof and begin to remove tile and they lower Jesus on his bed down into the midst of the room full of these teachers and Pharisees and scribes and the sick. What does Jesus say as this young man, lame on his mat, comes descending from the ceiling in the middle of this room? Does he say to the man, be healed? Does he say to the man, rise up and walk? He says to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Isn't that a strange thing to say? It's fairly obvious the man needs a healing. It's fairly obvious he's been brought there because of his lameness. No one to this point has talked about sin or brought up sin. The man certainly hasn't come repenting of anything. But as he's lowered into the room, Jesus, instead of talking about healing, brings up this topic of sin. You are forgiven of your sins. The Pharisees and the scribes are taken aback by this. Blasphemy, they say, Who has the power to forgive sins but God himself? No one can make you clean. No one has the right to forgive sins. God alone is able to pass those judgment. But here is Jesus speaking it. Be clean at my touch. Man, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says something really interesting to those Pharisees and scribes taken back by his forgiveness. He asks them a question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Now, I don't think Jesus was asking them to actually compare the difficulty of these two miracles. Which one is harder for me to do? Jesus was drawing attention to this tendency of Jewish teachers and Pharisees and Sadducees to connect physical ailments with underlying sin. Remember that scene in which they came along the blind man on the side of the road and seeking to trap Jesus, they said to him, who sinned, this man or his parents? They assumed that the man's blindness must be caused by some underlying sin. Or if you read in places like the Talmud, another one of those collections of ancient Jewish teaching, you'll get sayings like this, a sick man does not recover from his sickness until all his sins are forgiven him. As it is written, who forgiveth all thine iniquities? who healeth all my diseases. This is that common idea in the ancient world, that many of these sicknesses and diseases must be God's judgment on that person or on their parents. There was a fragment found at Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls that talked about a king of Babylon who had been smitten with an illness for seven years until a Jewish healer came along and conveyed a prophetic message that his sins had been forgiven, at which point he was healed. And so it is Jesus knows that these scribes and Pharisees sitting there, interested in what Jesus is saying about the law, interested in what he's teaching the people, having come hearing about his miracles and healings, in their minds, these two things are tightly connected. If a person is sick, if a person is struggling, then clearly there must be some underlying judgment upon their life. Luke has frequently had Jesus understanding what is in the minds of the crowd. Remember that scene in Nazareth before the people even speak. And so too, Jesus seems to sense what is going on in those Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These Pharisees have come because they've heard of Jesus's miracles, but now they're objecting because of his talk of sin, even though they are the ones themselves who connect these two things. They can't have it both ways. If Jesus can heal, then according to them, must he not also be forgiving those underlying sins and the brokenness of sin? And if he can speak of healing, and that healing, that forgiveness from sin, must it not also work that healing? Which is easier, he says, to heal or to forgive sins? But Jesus doubles down on it. That, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, rise up, and walk. Jesus does both for this man. Forgives his sins and heals him, so that they might see that he possesses this power combined in one. Here's what I think is going on in these two stories, this shift in Jesus' language away from the physicality of their brokenness, the healings they need, to this attention of cleanliness, this attention of sin at the center. Jesus is pushing the conversation away from just physical things and forcing those who are listening and coming to him to begin to look inside at what those deeper needs are. This is the word that's been spreading about him. He can heal. He can do miracles. He can provide boatloads of fish. We've seen the stories, the awe and the wonder, the signs that have been spreading, the conversations about him. And so people are flocking with every kind of need they possess, those who are filled with spirits and those who are sick. But Jesus doesn't see himself merely as a miracle worker, not just a miracle physician who can fix those external needs as those crowds are building and more are more coming to him, Jesus takes the initiative to bring up the forgiveness of sin. He speaks to this man. He provokes the Pharisees and the scribes. Man, may your sins be forgiven. Jesus wants to make perfectly clear that his eye is not just on the external broken things of humanity, the needs, the physical sickness, the things the crowds see and bring. But Jesus' eye is on this deeper need, that spiritual need, the thing that even those friends lowering their man, understanding exactly what they thought he needed, may not have even considered. Jesus has come to make clean. Jesus has come to forgive sins. That's to say, I think, in the shift of these stories, our attention away from just the power of Jesus to do things, to this conversation about how deep our need in sin actually is. Jesus is not here simply to pass out bread. He's not here simply to heal the sick. He's not even here simply to oppose Rome or set up a new kingdom. Jesus has come so that he might make clean. He has come so that he might forgive sin. One of the commentators I was reading this week put it this way. This moral order is absolute, woven into every fabric of creation. Personal sin, therefore, is never merely a private psychological event owing to ignorance or stupidity or some idolized upbringing. The sinner may be subjectively without blame, but the sin itself has objective consequences that claw at the well-being of the sinner and of others around him and of still yet others to be after him. That is to say, Jesus recognizes that what's most broken in this world around him is the sin, the sin that hangs over humanity and breaks all of what it is to be human, claws away at this purpose and creation that God has put in place. We like to talk about Jesus doing miracles. By the way, it's a lot easier to preach a sermon on Jesus doing miracles than to talk about Jesus raising up the topic of sin. We like to talk about Jesus doing healings. We even like to talk about Jesus opposing the sins of those self-righteous Pharisees. But what we don't like to do is to come to the realization that Jesus has his eye and his attention on the need of sin at each of our hearts. That's what happens here. A man that we would have imagined needed physical healing, which he does, but Jesus turns the topic to his need for forgiveness. That is what is at the center of this story of Jesus doing these works. What's most wrong with that world around Jesus, what's most wrong with this world that we live in, is not just the systems of this world or its governments or inequities or poverties or prejudices. What is most wrong in this world is what is inside of each of our hearts. Each of us is made sick with it, this sin that corrupts and breaks and distorts what it is to be human. It's not just physical, though our whole bodies are eaten up with the consequences of the fallen sin. This whole world is sick with sin. Our relationships suffer under it. Our lives are made blind because of it. And this is what Jesus, that crowd pressing around to get their next miracle, tries to turn their attention to. His heart is to heal, to make whole, to restore and establish. But Jesus recognizes that the center of that is this conversation of the sin that resides in each of our hearts. Look at them. The crowds mobbing for a miracle. We saw them last week literally almost pushing Jesus out into the sea as they rushed around him. The sickness, the desperation for a healing touch, the Pharisees sitting in, detached, passing their judgment. And Jesus says to all of them what apparently few of them are thinking about I want to talk about the forgiveness of sin. I have come to forgive your sins, I have come that you might be made clean. And restored to a true community. And invited back into right worship. And healed of that deeper sickness. I'm not sure how many of them that day understood it. Luke ends the story by saying they glorified God and were filled with awe. We have seen extraordinary things today is the final line of the story. It's a rare Greek word that you'll recognize. Paradoxus from which we get paradox. We've seen strange things. We've seen unexpected things. We've seen things we can't fully make sense of today. But how many of them do the thing that we saw last week in Peter? How many of them, before this power of Jesus to heal and make clean, fall before him and say, I am a man of sin? How many of them take up the topic of sin that Jesus has raised? They go away marveling at what they've seen, the signs and the miracles. But how many of them follow recognizing their need. We'll come back for a moment to Luke trying to set us up for how we've read the Gospels. I've been trying to point this out to you each week as we've been in these early chapters, that Luke is giving us clues on how it is we read this story best. And if you remember before, we looked at Nazareth and Capernaum and compared it with Peter's reaction, and we suggested that Peter models the right way to read Jesus's story, to humble ourselves, to fall before him, to acknowledge our need. Now we get more of that. Jesus here wanting to talk about sin as a way of saying that if you are going to read this gospel, this story, well, you will do it not by just looking at the external things Jesus can do, but you'll do it by recognizing that Jesus wants to have a conversation about the sins at the center of your life and your need for that forgiveness that he has come to offer. The leprous man, like Peter, falls to his face. Jesus, if you will, make me clean." Jesus talks about this forgiveness, which only seems to harden the heart of the Pharisees and their opposition to him. There is, at the end of this story, no mass repentance, no great turning of the crowd to the topic of sin or their own need for forgiveness, amazement, perhaps even worship, but the kind of worship that is impressed with what they've seen, not with what God is trying to do in them. I am a sinful man, was the words of Peter. If you will, make me clean, the words of this leper. It's no surprise that after this story, and it's some pity that we'll wait till January to get to it, but Jesus immediately after these two stories calls another disciple. And while you're reading Leviticus 13 and 14, go ahead and finish Luke chapter 5. And what you will find as he calls Levi is again this topic of sin at the center That Jesus has his eye on those who are willing to recognize their need, not just for physical things, but in a deeper and greater way for this forgiveness of sins at the center of who we are. Today, what I hope you take away from these passages is our tendency to pay such little attention to sin. Imagine this, Jesus showing up in the middle of the room and speaking about sin and us moving right on and not really recognizing he might be speaking to us. That he has come to forgive sins and we say, yeah, yeah, but let's get back to the healings and the miracles. Remember the fish in the boat. How easy it is for our greatest need to drift from our awareness. How easy it is to see all of the external things around us, even in their brokenness and miss the fact that they are connected to the broken sin at the center of each of our own lives. How easy it is to hear this talk of sin and ignore it altogether to recoil from it, to be offended by it, to imagine ourselves somehow in that seat of judge determining what is and isn't sinful and miss the fact that Christ is trying to take up the conversation with us. My experience is that just about everyone has opinions when it comes to sin. What is a sin? What really isn't a sin? Which sins are worse than other sins? What's a big deal and what's really not that big of a deal? But what few of us seem to have the interest in is being honest about the sin in our own lives. To sense and to say, as Peter does, I am a man of sin. Or like this leper, Jesus, I need you to make me clean. These Pharisees and scribes certainly don't seem to get it. All this talk of sin only hardens them against Jesus. And it's worth pointing out again... Don't be too hard on these Pharisees. These are not bad guys in the ancient world, but they're men desperately trying to live the Jewish life. They're obsessed with honoring God and obsessed with being obedient to his law. They live every moment of their lives in a careful and detailed observation of what is right and what is wrong. But they can't understand what Jesus is saying in this talk of forgiveness of sin, I think partly because they don't think they need it. They are there that day to observe and pass judgment, to come to a decision on what they think Jesus is doing and isn't doing, should he be followed or shouldn't he? At no point does Jesus' talk of sin and forgiveness pierce their own lives to help them recognize that they are those precisely who Jesus has come to give forgiveness to, for they are included in those who live under this state of sin. I want to end with a kind of strange question for you today. I want like Peter and like this man of leprosy for us to take a moment to recognize the fact that we need forgiveness. That might seem so elementary that perhaps it would be better suited for our kids' class. But the truth is, it's something that so quickly leaves us, drifts away from us, how quickly we forget That Christ has come to speak forgiveness to us precisely because it is what we most need. I want to recognize, like Peter and this man of leprosy, that really what I need more than anything else is to be made clean, to be forgiven. With all of the problems that I face and the brokenness around me and the opinions that I have about what God should do to fix and straighten out all of the issues. God, help me not to forget that what I need more than anything else is to hear this Savior speak again to me. Your sins are forgiven. Can I offer you this this morning, that simple statement by Jesus to you? Again, if you will turn to him, if you will listen to him, if you will hear not just what you want, but what he says to you, Jesus has come to say to you too, you are forgiven. He has come to say to you this morning with a touch of his hand by his spirit, be made clean, be restored, be made new. But that will mean very little to you if you're unable to recognize that you need it. Isn't that the prerequisite? That the greatest act of grace, the greatest word of Jesus's good news comes to those who are most desperate to hear it. And to those indifferent to their own need and own sins, what is this talk of forgiveness and grace and healing at all? If you've become so distracted that you no longer recognize sin in your own heart, then don't be surprised if these stories and words of Jesus don't just slide right past without any real significance or weight lose a sense of your need and all of the things that Jesus says and does, though intellectually interesting, may mean very little to you. But if you recognize that need, that sin that continues to cling at the human heart, if you recognize how desperately you need forgiveness, then what does it mean to hear Jesus speak out of the blue to this man, man, your sins are forgiven. If you lose awareness of your need, if you forget how great that sin is and think basically you're a pretty good person, everything you read in this gospel that's before us will be distorted by it. You will go looking for the wrong things. You'll misunderstand what Jesus is saying. You'll set yourself up in one of those seats of the Pharisees to observe and pass judgment on what you think is and isn't happening. The only way to read this story of Jesus, this gospel well, is to come to it like Peter and this man with leprosy, recognizing that you come to this story as one desperate for forgiveness. You come to this story as one who is still plagued by this brokenness of sin, that though your physical needs may be great, they are nothing compared to that need for healing of the soul, for forgiveness of sins and to be made clean again. The crowd went away in awe. They went away amazed. They went away saying, isn't God good? But who among them fell on their faces and said, I am a sinful man. Forgive me. Make me clean. I'll end with this and we'll turn to a word of prayer. Everybody loves the song Amazing Grace. I find that to be pretty universally true. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. But I think that's only a sweet sound, and I think it's only amazing if you genuinely sing those next lines. Why is that grace so amazing? Why is it sound so sweet? Because it saved a wretch like me. Those words are only amazing if you can also say, for I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. That's my prayer this morning. Two things that would happen that you would, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, sense again your need for his forgiveness, the sin that corrupts and plagues. And that just as the Spirit brings to light that sin still at your heart, you would hear spoken over you by Jesus, you are forgiven. You need only know that you need it and turn to him to hear it. And he will speak that forgiveness again into your life. So we make that our prayer this morning together. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing how easy it is for our mind and our attention and our awareness to shift to the things of this world. God, we watch the news. We know what's happening, the brokenness of our own families and our communities. God, we know what it is to live in fear and uncertainty of things to come and how easy it is for our lives to be absorbed in all the things we think should happen and all the fears and concerns. But God, we take a moment this morning to recognize that for all of the sin in the world, God, that same sin resides in each of us. That God, my own heart is corrupt with it and broken by it. That my greatest needs are not financial or even physical. They're not in culture or government or this world, but God, my greatest need lies in this heart and its tendency to rebel against you and the sin that has corrupted my relationship with you. And so we pray again that we might have a sense of it, each for ourselves, that we, like Peter, fall before you and cry out again, I am an unclean man. But God, your news is good precisely because it comes to us as grace and mercy. That in that moment, we also hear you in this story, speaking over that man, having not even yet asked for it, your heart compelled to make clean and forgive. You are forgiven. God, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak that salvation into our hearts as well this morning. That though we are lost, and though we are corrupted by sin, and though we are in desperate need, that you have come that we might receive forgiveness and you have poured that forgiveness out by grace and mercy over us. You are forgiven. Speak it again over us by your spirit. Forgiveness this morning, God. That we would leave here worshiping not just in awe of what we've seen, but God, in awe of what you've done in our hearts, this forgiveness that you've spoken over us. So this morning, we worship you. We do it in gratitude for what you have given. We humble ourselves again, acknowledging our sin and receiving again your forgiveness over us. And we worship you in gratitude for it. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.